2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 1 through verse 13. Let's bow before the Lord before reading. Our Savior, we ask that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are indwelt by the Spirit, and we are enabled to be worshipers indeed. Help us to know that the way in which we hear your word is worship, and you call upon us to pay attention, not only with, with the hearing of the ear, but with the hearing of the ear of the heart. And we pray that if there are those among us today who do not know the Lord Jesus, that in the strange and mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, they may be drawn out of darkness into light, out of the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of God's own dear Son. For we pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. 2 Timothy 2, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure We will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. People of God, let me remind you that Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep, gave his life on a cross to purchase us from our sins. He sacrificed himself in order that we might live. He suffered and bled and died for the sake of his sheep. The under-shepherd, the pastor, also must be willing to give his life for his sheep. He doesn't have as much to give. He's finite, not infinite. He is a mere man and a fallen and sinful man. He is not God. Only Christ could save sinners. Only Christ could give his life to redeem But nonetheless, the under-shepherd is to have a heart that increasingly is like the heart of the good shepherd who gave his life for his sheep. That is the calling that is placed upon Timothy, the young protege of Paul the Apostle, in this passage. He must be willing to suffer for the sake of the sheep. There was widespread defection from the gospel in the Roman province of Asia. As we saw last time, there were those who could have stood with Paul that did not stand with Paul, and in rejecting Paul, they are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, this is where Timothy is, in this Roman province of Asia, in the western part of Turkey, in the city of Ephesus. And in Rome, Nero has begun his persecution, and that's why Paul is in the Mamertine prison. And so the theme of what we find here has been, do not be ashamed. Yes, you are going to suffer in the midst of your suffering. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. And he continues by saying, this is your calling also, Timothy, to suffer for the cause of the sheep. So Paul's purpose in these troubled times is to say to his young protege, you therefore be strong. As he says in the very first verse of chapter 2, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now as we come to the text, let's, let's together ask a few questions. The first question is this, why must the faithful pastor be willing to sacrifice and to suffer for his flock? Why? And the answer is found in verse 10, where Paul the Apostle says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why must the faithful pastor be willing to sacrifice and suffer? Paul the Apostle says plainly, I do this, and Timothy, by implication, you must, and those who come after you who are pastors must do this for the sake of God's elect. Now, Paul is firmly committed to the doctrine of election. He's already mentioned it in verse 9 of the first chapter, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It permeates the Pauline epistles. It's everywhere present. I know a lot of Christians don't like the doctrine, but there it is, right there in the Bible, from beginning to end, and especially in the epistles of Paul. Paul knows that not one of the fathers chosen, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and called by the Holy Spirit, will perish. He revels in this truth. He delights in the reality of this doctrine. And he is motivated and energized by the infallibility of it. God's elect will be saved. That is what God the Father promises. But there also is an inseparable connection between the eternal choice of God to save sinners and the minister's call to preach the gospel and to live sacrificially in ministry. Paul knew that the same God who ordains the salvation of sinners also has ordained the means for accomplishing that salvation. He chose his people, but Christ still must die for them. Christ must die for them, but the Spirit of God still must call them. And those who come to faith in Christ must hear the gospel message in order to believe it and be saved from their sins. Therefore, the same God who has ordained the end has ordained the means for accomplishing the end, and an indispensable means is the proclamation of the gospel and the sacrificial ministry of pastors for the sheep. So there's no room for slothful, careless ministry. And if someone says to me, well, how do you reconcile this emphasis on the sovereignty of God, the absolute promise that God will save his own? 
And this real responsibility that the minister has to preach the gospel, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and human responsibility? Then I simply answer with Charles Spurgeon, you don't need to reconcile friends. This is God's truth. These things are reconciled in his mind. And so Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of God's elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul knows they will be saved. He also knows the weight of eternal glory is upon him as he proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. And both of these things are true. And so Paul says, I endure everything. Paul is here in chains. Uh, He says in verse 9, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. He's in chains. May I remind you again of what the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 11? Will you turn there? I know we read this recently, but it's important, I think, that we look again. Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of God's elect. Well, what did he endure? Here in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23... The Apostle Paul says, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? And Second Corinthians 11 is written mid-career. He's not done yet. And this is what he has endured for the cause of the gospel, for the sake of God's elect. So why was Paul willing to suffer deprivation, travels, dangers, pain? Why must the minister endure weeks that crush body and soul, the burdens of many a shared secret, the emotional weight of people walking away from their profession of faith, the constant unmitigated call to study and pray and preach and teach? Why must Timothy refute false teachers, even go to Rome to help Paul in prison? Why must aspersion be called all manner of names for standing for the faith and even be censured by the Baptist Union when he was faithful and they were not? Why must Machen be cast out of the ministry of the PCUSA when he was the Bible believer and faithful to the confession of faith and they were not? Why did Whitfield make 15 trips to Scotland to preach the gospel? Why did Whitfield cross the Atlantic in storm and sea, in small little leaky shipping vessels, seven trips to America to preach an estimated 18,000 sermons with a weak and tired and sick body. 
Why did A.T. Robertson write for the minister's use a Greek grammar of 1,500 pages? Why all of that sweat and toil and labor? The answer is here in verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so he's saying to Timothy, and he says to ministers, You keep this in mind, this glorious goal. Those who will hear and will believe, those who will persevere under your ministry, those who will go to heaven under the sound of your voice as you exposit the Scripture. You keep, Timothy, young minister Timothy, young pastor, you keep that glorious goal always before you. And on various levels, this is applicable to us all. You are not all called to be ministers of the Word, but all of us as believers in Jesus minister to someone for whom we also are called to sacrifice so that they also may hear the gospel and believe and live accordingly. Well, that's the first question. But let's ask a second. If we have answered the question why, now let's answer the question how. How must the faithful pastor be willing to sacrifice and suffer? And the Apostle Paul gives here a series of metaphors. Actually, there are more in the text that follows the next time, but we only see a few today. How must the faithful pastor be willing to sacrifice and suffer? First of all, as a child. Notice that it's a metaphor used in the very first verse of chapter 2. Paul says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So he calls Timothy his child. That is to say, you are the one who lives after the pattern of me, and I'm your spiritual father. The word technon, child, here is a noun derived from the verb that means to give birth. Paul's goal was for Timothy to be like him, to believe what Paul believes, to suffer as Paul suffers, to minister as Paul ministers. Paul is Timothy's spiritual father. He must take the time, Timothy must take the time to grow in te carity, in the realm of grace. He must receive and pass on what he has learned from his spiritual father, Paul. The great concern of the pastorals is that we learn and pass on the good deposit. Never is the concern solely for this generation only. It is for the generations that will come behind us. And so really the theme of the pastorals is here in verse 2, what you have heard from me, that is from Paul, your spiritual father, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. How must the faithful pastor be willing to sacrifice and suffer? He must do so as a child who has learned from spiritual fathers. But also, he must do so as a soldier. Verses 3 and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The minister must be also a soldier of the gospel. He must endure hardship. Soldiers do not look for things to be easy. Christian living, as well as 
ministry of the word, Christian living is warfare. And the minister is not to be entangled in the affairs of this life. The ESV translates it civilian pursuits. Especially the minister must eschew all that hinders teaching and tending the flock. The question the minister must constantly ask himself is this question, what is getting in the way of living for Christ? What is getting in the way of serving Christ? What is getting in the way of the ministry of the word? What in my life needs to go so that I may tend the flock under my care? And then he says, a soldier seeks to please his commanding officer. Look at verse 4 again. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You have been enlisted. You have been called to this service. E.K. Simpson says it very beautifully. The spectacle of military discipline furnished a grand lesson of wholeheartedness. Now that's Paul's point. The minister is called to wholeheartedness. What entangles that needs to be removed. We are engaged in a military campaign. Now, that's not only true for the minister of the Word. That's true of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are engaged in a military campaign. Our one goal, our sole aim, is to please our commanding officer. Utter, complete, uncompromising devotion is the call of the text upon our lives. And so as a child and as a soldier, the minister, the Christian, must serve. But also the text says the minister must serve as an athlete. He says this in verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And so the minister is to compete for the crown. Paul grew up in Tarsus, you will remember, and Tarsus was an intellectual center. It was a university town. Undoubtedly, this young Jewish boy growing up in this very Greek city saw the the togas being removed, strong men throwing the javelin or the discus or running the race there at the University of Tarsus. And the Apostle Paul uses the word Stephanus here, crown. Actually, it's the laurel wreath. Now, you know, the laurel wreath that was won after you had had competed in the race, it wasn't worth much. What made it worthwhile was its symbolism, that it pointed to victory. And so he is saying to Timothy, you must compete with victory in mind. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9. The Apostle Paul uses this image very pointedly there in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 24, where he says, 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And so Paul says, run to win the race. And... Compete according to the rules here in verse 5. Every sport has its rules. You don't play rugby the same way that you play baseball. 
That would be a mess, wouldn't it? No one is crowned who breaks the rules. Now, we know in our culture today that it's possible for someone later to have been found doping and his laurels are removed. But the point, I think, still stands here in Paul. The point is this. Our Lord has established the rules of the race, the rules of the competition. So for Timothy to say, you know, things are getting a bit hard here in Ephesus. There is defection all around, apostasy. Everywhere I turn, people are just not believing, or maybe they're fudging a little bit. And so you know what I think I'll do? I'll compromise the gospel just a little in order to win the race. I might have a larger congregation that way. I might have people that are more amenable to the faith. Maybe they won't think they have to suffer so much as Christians. I'll just compromise the gospel a little in order to win the race. And Paul's point is, that is the sure way of losing the race. You never win by compromising the gospel. And Paul himself, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, explains to us his own attitude when he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. Run as an athlete. But then the apostle gives another metaphor, and I must tell you that of all the metaphors, I think this is my personal favorite. It's the metaphor of a farmer. It's found in verses 6 and 7. Look at it. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And I think this is my favorite metaphor because, for one thing, He emphasizes the hard work to which the minister is called. He uses the term kapiao, which means toil. It's the same word that is used in 1 Timothy 5.17 when he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so he says, you're to be like a farmer. And that means hard work. It means a lot of labor. H.C.G. Moole, as cited by John Stott, says, The strenuous and prosaic toil of the farmer. Unlike the soldier and the athlete, the farmer's life is totally devoid of excitement, remote of all glamour of peril and applause. So that's really why I like this. It points to the regular and the ongoing, and at least in the world's eyes, the unexciting. It's deadlines, it's endless prayer, it's constant patience, it's toil, it's not front page news, quite frankly. Imagine that. You get up every day, you pray for your people, you open the Bible, you study your Greek New Testament, you prepare and you come and you teach people that you hope will want to hear it. And you do that week after week after week after week, three times a week or whatever it is in your ministry. It's like the farmer. He gets up in the morning, he milks his cows. He slops his hogs. No comparison here, folks. That's 
not my point. He plows the furrow. He drops the seed. He waits. Sometimes there's fruit that he can see. Sometimes he loses a whole crop. It's pretty hard. Being a farmer is tough work. That's what Paul has in mind. Things that the world just doesn't value. Now, I'll be frank with you. I think the ministry has a lot of romance. But you have to find that romance in the midst of what most people would consider to be just the mundane. And the church is so interested in the flashy and the exciting. When, when I come to the New Testament, what I see is word and sacrament, the means of grace, the regular and the ongoing. You want to grow in grace? That's where you give your life, to the regular, to the ongoing. I really mean that. But he says the benefits are tangible because the minister ought to have the first of the crop. I think what he means by that is as the minister labors in the word and studies and prepares and preaches and teaches, the first one served is his own soul. And so Paul says... How are you to serve? You serve as a child. You serve as a soldier. You serve as an athlete. You serve as a farmer. And then in verse 7, he says, Timothy, consider this. Look at it, verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Timothy, I've just written God's word to you. This is what you need to ponder, to digest, to reflect upon, to contemplate. This is God's Word. Just as you also are called to think carefully and ponder the Word of the Lord every day in your life. How do you expect to minister without getting it way down deep? People, how do you expect to grow in grace if you don't pay attention to the words? This is how God has revealed himself. If you don't meditate upon it, if you don't think on these things. That's just not exciting, Pastor. That's your attitude that's very frightening to me. Because again, it's the regular, it's the ongoing that God has promised to bless. We have another question to ask. What's the principle that's at work here? What does Paul say? What's the overall message in all of this? What is the principle that is at work in this passage? Struggle, hardship, discipline, stretching forward, winning races. There must be the cross before the crown. There must be pain before gain. This he says to Timothy the pastor. This he says to me but it's applicable to every believer in Jesus Christ sitting here today. Every one of us needs to get a grip on this principle. And he says, in order to see this, look to our Lord. In verses 8 and 9, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound in chains as a criminal. Now remember, his person, his work, He's descended from David, his utter humiliation, his exaltation. He was raised from the dead on the third day. Now he sits on David's throne. And the minister has special need to remember this. But what if we encouraged one another with these words? 
my brother, my sister, you're going through terrible things right now. This is not a pious platitude. Really hear my words. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Remember he too was humiliated before he was exalted. Remember he went to the cross before he was raised and ascended on high. But do remember in the midst of your troubles that he does rule, that he does live, that he does reign, that he was raised. But utter humiliation was first. Nonetheless, not Nero, but Jesus rules and reigns. So look at the Lord and you see this principle, the cross before the crown. And then he says, also look at me in my ministry. Look at Paul, verses 9 and 10, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Though Paul is bound, that's the humiliation, that's the suffering, God's word is not bound and is accomplishing God's purpose. He is in chains for Christ like a common criminal, but God's word goes forward. So Paul endures all things for the elect's sake. Do you see the principle? Here's the principle. Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. And there's almost humor in the fact that men can do their absolute worst and yet God is accomplishing his purpose in it all. And Paul knows that. So the principle at work here, the cross before the crown, look at Jesus, look at Paul, but he shows it in another way. Look at a faithful saying. Now we find that faithful saying in verse 11 and following. The saying is trustworthy. This is one of the several faithful sayings in the pastoral epistles. You remember that famous one. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Well, this is another one. It perhaps was a creed or a hymn that was sung in the church. Words that went around the body of Christ for their encouragement. So he says, that song you sing, it also teaches this principle, the suffering, then the crown. And so he works this out in two couplets. Look at it here in verse 11. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now this is the positive. He's not saying there, if we died with him, in the sense in which in Romans 6 or Galatians 2.20, he speaks of death with Christ. I think Hendrickson really hits it on the head when he says that Paul is saying this. For Christ's sake and in harmony with his example, we have given ourselves up once for all to a life that involves exposure to pain, torture, reproach, and finally to the martyr's death. We have accordingly died to worldly comfort, ease, advantage, and honor. If then we have in that sense died with him, we shall also live with him here and now, even more by and by in heavenly glory, and especially after the judgment day in the new heaven and earth. So he's saying in that first couplet, essentially what Jesus says in Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, and I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. But then there's a second couplet, and this couplet brings with it warning. 
You see it here in the second part of verse 12. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we deny him, he will deny us. Which is what Jesus said in Matthew 10, Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then, I think one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, apostumen, faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And if we think these last words are intended to say, though I am faithless, he will save me in his faithfulness, you're misreading the passage. The point is not that. The point is, if I am faithless, he will deny me in his faithfulness. Do not blunt the edge of the passage. Surely, divine faithfulness is a tremendous encouragement to the faithful. But for those who only give lip service to following Jesus Christ, his faithfulness should be terrifying. Not all who name Christ's name know him. Not all who say they follow him, follow him. And the faithful can fail. Peter denied Christ and was forgiven. The faithful can and do fail, but the faithful cannot completely and utterly fall away. So that's the principle at work in this passage as he writes this young pastor, Timothy. Timothy, here's the principle. Guarding the trust, guarding the good deposit, Guarding the word, the gospel, and passing it down costs. Do you hear it? People of God, guarding the trust is costly. The faltering steps of a child, the blood of the soldier of the cross, the agony of the athlete, the toil and labor of the farmer, the suffering, then the crown, the pain before the gain, life through death, glory after suffering, no cross, no crown. That's the theme of the passage. Spurgeon says very, very beautifully, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. This has long been the motto fixed before our eye upon the wall of our bedchamber. And in many ways, it has also been written on our heart. It is no mean thing to be chosen of God. God's choice makes chosen men choice men. We are chosen not in the palace, but in the furnace. In the furnace, beauty is marred. Fashion is destroyed. Strength is melted. Glory is consumed. Yet here, eternal love reveals its secrets and declares its choice. So... Has it been in our case? Therefore, if today the furnace be heated seven times hotter, we will not dread it, for the glorious Son of God will walk with us amid the glowing coals. But let's ask one other question of this text. What encouragements to faithfulness do we find here? Let me simply mention them. 
The first encouragement is divine election. He says in verse 10, Therefore I endure, yes, he endures, everything for the sake of God's elect. For the sake of the elect, God will save his own. The second encouragement is the promise of the crown. Verse 11, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's the promise. The third encouragement is Jesus Christ really does live. He was raised from the dead. And so we read in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. But because of that, there comes this greatest of encouragements to Paul, to Timothy, to all ministers of the word, and to this church this morning. And it is this encouragement. The victory of the gospel is certain. Verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, For the gospel I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul is in chains. But the word was going forth, and indeed, as a proof, that word of Paul the Apostle is going forth to you 2,000 years later this morning. The word of God is not bound. My, that's an encouragement to me. I do work hard. But I can't bless the word. I am strenuous in ministry. But only the Holy Spirit can open a heart. I can preach my heart out. But only God can save a soul. But I have his word for it. He's going to bless his word. Eric Sauer wrote a book. German theologian called In the Arena of Faith, many years ago. It's a book about Hebrews 12. Let us look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He tells this story. It's kind of long. Listen. Years ago, we were in the Colosseum. It is the site where formerly the golden house of Nero stood, A vast palace with many villas and gardens, fountains and lakes and halls adorned with gold, marble, and ivory. It was the scene of Nero's persecution of Christians where shortly after Paul's time they were killed in most horrible ways. Fifteen years after Nero, the emperors Vespasian and Titus of the Flavian house built the vast Flavian amphitheater, the greatest example of Roman construction. The name Colosseum was given only later in the Middle Ages because of the nearness of a colossal statue of Nero. By night, the mighty ruins rear against the sky like a specter. The most important walls, rows of seats, boxes, and doors can still be plainly recognized. We entered the former imperial box and gained an impressive view. We saw the box where sat the vestal priestesses in white robes, the priestesses of the state who had the chief decision for life or death of the defeated gladiators. We saw the great chambers with the railed cages where some 2,000 wild beasts were kept, 
lions, bears, elephants, giraffes, tigers, and other beasts of prey from Africa and Asia. On the left was the great arch of the door of the living, through which passed the gladiators and martyrs to reach the arena. Hail to thee, O Caesar, those about to die greet thee. A thousand times this had rung out before the emperor's box. Opposite to it was the door of Libertina, the door of the goddess of corpses, through which the fallen warriors or the dead martyrs were dragged with hooks. What a bloodthirsty ecstasy of masses. What streams of martyr blood had flowed on this very spot in the two centuries from the time of the apostles. How helpless and feeble the small band of Christians then seemed. How did they appear to be doomed to utter destruction without deliverance? How small one feels, especially in such a place, when remembering all these heroes, without whom we of today would not possess the treasure of the gospel. But what did we see in the arena, in the very center, directly in front of the ruins of the royal box? A cross, a plain, high cross. About the year 1300, a cross was erected here in the memory of the martyrs. In the course of time, it was lost. In the year 1927, it was again erected by order of the Italian government with this most significant inscription on its base. Hail to thee, O cross, the only hope. A cross in the Colosseum? exactly where formerly believers, on account of their testimony to the crucified, suffered a bloody death, exactly where a cross stands erect today, bearing this so simple but mighty inscription. The seats of the heathen mockers, the walls of the Colosseum itself, lie in ruins. On the place where God's witnesses died, in the middle of the arena stands like a sign of triumph, a victorious and lofty cross. Three times I've been in the Colosseum. Three times have I stood long and thoughtfully before this cross and its inscription. Immediately before we had seen in the, Roman, in the, in the, for, in the Forum Romanum the splendid marketplace of ancient Rome. We had seen temples of the gods, noble halls, triumphal arches all in ruins. We had walked over the Via Sacra, the holy street of processions and triumphs, but around were only ruins. Indeed, so completely was this center of world empire later forgotten that overgrown with rushes and bushes, it was used by a peasant by peasants to rest their oxen and late in the Middle Ages was called the cow pasture. But the band of the persecuted remain victors. Their faith in Christ was stronger than all the hate of their enemies. The cross on account of which they suffered became a symbol of triumph. The temples of the heathen and the palaces of their, ruin, of their, of their rulers have sunk in dust, but the temple of the church remains. How is this? It is because Christ the crucified is also the risen one. Because In this, his temple, the temple of the church, the true God dwells. Because this house, though outwardly plain, is the royal house of the eternal. Thus history testifies. Thus will at last eternity testify. And thus 
will also join in the testimony of the Colosseum cross, crying, Hail to thee, O cross, the only hope. From this confidence of victory, we can draw fresh incentive to hasten joyfully forward to the heavenly goal. Because Christ has triumphed, we also can conquer. His cross is at once the sign of victory, of duty, and of promise for all who believe on him. Therefore, faith in him is both hope and assurance. And looking unto him, we can run with steadfastness the race, the race of faith. The cross before the crown. The cross the promise to the people of God of the crown of eternal victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen.